Chapter 7, The Nature of Pre-Existence in the New Testament. I start with a quotation from the words of Gabriel. Holy Spirit will come upon you. For that reason, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now a quotation from Morris Wiles in his book, The Remaking of Christian Doctrine. Within the Christian tradition, the New Testament has been read through the prism of the later conciliar creeds. Speaking of Jesus as the Son of God had a very different connotation in the first century from that which it has had ever since the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Talk of his pre-existence, or probably in most, perhaps in all cases, to be understood on the analogy of the pre-existence of the Torah to indicate the eternal divine purpose being achieved through him rather than pre-existence of a fully personal kind. The mainstream churches are committed to a certain doctrine about Jesus, but specialists in early Christian thought are questioning the arguments by which that doctrine was reached. New Testament scholars ask if the New Testament teaches it at all, and historians wonder at the gulf between Jesus himself and fully developed Christianity. These questions are very unsettling, for they imply that Christianity may be in worse condition than was thought. It is perhaps not a basically sound structure that needs only to be modernized, but may be in need of radical reconstruction. The New Testament never suggests that the phrase Son of God just means God. That's from Don Cupid in his book, The Debate About Christ, written in 1979. Yet evangelicalism insists on that equation of Son of God meaning God, if one is to be considered a Christian at all. I quote, when the Jew wished to designate something as predestined, he spoke of it as already existing in heaven. That's a quotation from E.G. Selwyn in his book on the first epistle of St. Peter, written in 1983. Thus, so-called pre-existence statements in the New Testament really have to do with foreordination and predestination. It was the Greeks who misunderstood Jewish ways of thinking and turned Jesus into a cosmic figure who entered the earth from outer space. But is such a Jesus really a human being? Is he the true Messiah of Israel? Many dedicated Christians are currently exercised about the Gnostic and mystical tendencies affecting the church. But many are quite unaware that philosophical, mystical ideas invaded the church from the second century onwards via the so-called church fathers who were steeped in pagan philosophy and laid the foundation of the creeds which we now call, quote, orthodox. The seed of Trinitarian doctrine was planted in the thinking of Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist who, quote, found in Platonism 
the nearest approach to Christianity, and felt that no break was required with its spirit and principles to pass into the greater light of Christian revelation. The forces which operated to change apostolic doctrine were derived from paganism. The habits of thought which the Gentiles brought into the church are sufficient to explain the corruption of apostolic doctrine which began in the post-apostolic age. That's a quotation from G.T. Purvis in a book called The Testimony of Justin Martyr to Early Christianity, written in 1889. Intelligent Christians need to be informed of these corruptions and how they are currently, quote, canonized as scripture by many. Discernment means learning the difference between revealed truth and pagan philosophical teachings which originated outside the Bible, yet affected what is now called, quote, orthodoxy. We would ask the reader to consider the disastrous effects of not paying attention to the Jewish ways of thinking found in the Bible, which was written, with the exception of Luke, by Jews. Clearly, if Jews do not mean what we mean by, quote, pre-existence, we are liable to misunderstand them on basic issues about who Jesus is. There's a huge difference between being predestined or foreordained and actually pre-existing. Greek philosophy believed in, quote, a second God, a non-human intermediary between the Creator and the world. The true Jesus, however, is, quote, the man Messiah, the one mediator between God and man, as we read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. I quote, to us Christians, there's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Messiah. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Note carefully Paul's definition of the one God. The New Testament is a thoroughly Jewish book, its writers were all Jews, except probably Luke, who, however, is as Jewish as any of the writers in terms of his obvious delight in the Jewish salvation mentioned in John 4.22. That Jewish salvation offered in Jesus to both Jew and Gentile. Modern Bible readers approach basic biblical issues with an entrenched Greek outlook on life. This they've inherited from the churches and early post-biblical creeds, which overlooked the fact that Jesus was a Jew who thought and taught in Jewish categories. There's an anti-Semitic tendency in traditional creedal Christianity, which must be recognized and forsaken. It has dramatically affected Christian doctrine. It has affected the way we define the person of Jesus, the Messiah. The idea that the soul separates from the body and survives consciously apart from the body is a thoroughly un-Jewish idea. This is well established in the Old Testament perspective and the New Testament teaching about the nature of man 
is based on the old. Modern readers of the Bible are shocked to discover that in the Bible, the whole man dies and goes into unconsciousness called sleep and is returned to life only by the future resurrection of the whole person. Traditional Christianity persists with the mistaken notion that man has, quote, an immortal soul which lives on after death. Many Bible readers have not paid attention to the statement of the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. No biblical text authorizes the statement that the soul is separated from the body at the moment of death. The notion that Jesus was really alive and conscious before his birth in Bethlehem is also a very un-Jewish idea. Human beings in Hebrew thought do not exist consciously before they are born. The pre-existence of souls belongs to the world of Greek philosophy and was held by some church fathers, notably the philosophically and mystically minded Origen, but they did not derive this idea from the Bible. Part of Christian growth is the willingness to admit that we've been deceived, that we have not had sufficient information to make good decisions on Bible issues. One most important fact we need to know before we attempt to understand who Jesus was is this. I quote, when the Jews said something was predestined, he thought of it as already, quote, existing in a higher sphere of life. The world's history is thus predestined because it is already, in a sense, pre-existing and consequently fixed. This typically Jewish conception of predestination may be distinguished from the Greek idea of pre-existence by the predominance of the thought of pre-existence in the divine purpose. End of quotation from E.C. DeWick in his book Primitive Christian Eschatology, the Halcyon Prize Essay for 1908. Our scholar goes on to tell us that this typical mode of Jewish thought is clearly illustrated in 1 Peter. This reminds us immediately that Peter did not abandon his Jewish ways of thinking based on the Hebrew Bible when he became a Christian. Peter's letter is addressed to, quote, the elect according to the foreknowledge, the Greek word prognosis, the foreknowledge of God the Father. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Peter believed that all Christians were foreknown, but that did not mean that we all pre-existed. Peter's doctrine of future things is permeated by the same thought that all is foreordained in God's great plan. God sees everything laid out before him. Those who have the gift of the Spirit will share God's outlook and in faith recognize that the reality of God's plan will in the future become reality on earth. According to Peter, the Messiah himself was foreknown, not just his death for our sins, but the person Messiah himself. 
1 Peter 1, verse 20. Peter uses the same word to describe the, quote, existence of the Son of God in God's plan as he did to describe the existence of the Christian church in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Though the Messiah was foreknown, not known, but foreknown, as was Jeremiah before his birth, see Jeremiah 1, verse 5, the Messiah was manifested by being brought into actual existence at his birth. Luke 1, verse 35. This is a typically Jewish way of understanding God's purpose for mankind. He executes the plan at the appropriate time. The sort of so-called pre-existence which Peter has in mind is the sort that fits the Jewish environment, not the Greek atmosphere of later post-biblical Christianity. I quote, We are not entitled to say that Peter was familiar with the idea of Christ's pre-existence with the Father before the Incarnation. And I add this here, We are therefore not entitled to claim that Peter was a Trinitarian, Continuing with the quotation, for this idea is not necessarily implied in his description of Christ as, quote, foreknown before the foundation of the world, since Christians are also the objects of God's foreknowledge. All that we can say is that the phrase pro catabolis cosmu, before the foundation of the world, affirms for Christ's office and work a supramundane range and importance. Peter has not extended his belief in Christ's divinity to an affirmation of his pre-existence. Peter's Christology is more like that of the early chapters of Acts than of John and Paul. That's a quotation from E.G. Selwyn, First Epistle of St. Peter. We disagree, of course, that Peter's idea of Jesus is different from that of Paul and John. It is highly improbable that the apostles differed in their view of who Jesus was. Peter, as the leading apostle, Matthew 10, verse 2, would have had no sympathy with either a Trinitarian or Arian, represented by modern Jehovah's Witnesses, the Arian view of Jesus would have not been anything that Peter would have considered. We note also that for Peter, the future salvation of the Christians, the kingdom they are to inherit at the return of Christ, is likewise waiting in heaven, quote, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 verse 5. The second coming is thus to be an apocalypse, as to say, an unveiling of what is now, so to speak, existing but hidden from our sight. So it is said of Jesus that he was, quote, foreknown and waiting to be revealed in God's good time. 1 Peter 1 verse 20. Neither the kingdom nor Jesus actually existed in advance. They were planned from before the foundation of the world. 
Paul uses the same concept and language about the future resurrection and immortality of the saints. He says that we already, quote, have a building from God, a house fit for the coming age. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. This is the proper translation of that Greek word aeonios, as to say belonging to the coming age of the kingdom, not, quote, eternal. This does not, of course, mean that the body of the future is temporary, it confers immortality, and thus lasts forever. The acquisition of that body is nevertheless the great event of the coming age, introduced by the future resurrection, which will occur at the second coming of Jesus. Our future resurrection body already, so to speak, exists in God's intention and may be thought of as real because it is certain to be manifested in the future. In that sense, we, quote, have it, though we obviously do not yet have it literally. The same is true of the treasure we have in heaven. It's promised for our future. We will receive the reward of the inheritance, Colossians 3.24, when Christ brings it from heaven to the earth at his future coming. For ordination rather than literal pre-existence. Having grasped this elementary fact of Jewish and biblical theology and thinking, it will not be difficult to adjust our understanding of other passages where the same principle of, so to speak, existence, followed by actual manifestation, is found. Thus Jesus says in John 17, verse 5, Glorify me now with the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the world. On the basis of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, a Christian in the future, after the resurrection at Christ's return, will be able to say that he has now received what he already, so to speak, had, as to say, laid up for him in God's plan. Christians are said to have treasure in heaven, Mark 10, verse 21. That is, a reward stored up with God now and destined to be conferred in the future. This is only to say that they will one day in the future, quote, inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 34. When Jesus says that he had the glory for which he now prays in John 17, 5, he is merely asking for the glory which he knew was prepared for him by God from the beginning. I note that the synoptic, that's to say in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic way of expressing the same idea is to talk of the kingdom, quote, prepared before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. That glory existed in God's plan, and in that sense Jesus already, so to speak, had it. We note that Jesus never said, give me back 
or restore to me the glory which I had when I was alive with you before my birth. This notion would have been completely foreign to Judaism. It is quite unnecessary and indeed wrong to read Gentile ideas into the texts of Scripture when we can make good sense of them as they stand in their Jewish environment. The onus is on those who believe in literal pre-existence to demonstrate that the text cannot be explained within their own Jewish context. And it should be remembered that the Hebrew Bible, which has much to say in anticipation of the coming Son of God, makes no statement to imply that the Messiah was God destined to arrive from a personal pre-birth existence in heaven. The idea that God can be born as a man is alien to the Jewish environment in which Jesus taught. A revolution would have been required for the introduction of such a novel concept. The so-called pre-existence of Jesus in John refers to his existence, so to speak, in the plan of God. The church has been plagued by the introduction of non-biblical language. There's a perfectly good word for real pre-existence in the Greek language, proiparchin. It is very significant that that word pre-exist appears nowhere in Scripture with reference to Jesus, but it does in the writings of the Greek church fathers of the second century. These Greek commentators on Scripture fail to understand the Hebrew categories of thought in which the New Testament is written. The biblical view of Jesus before his birth has to do with his, quote, existence in God's plan and vision. Pre-existence in the Bible does not mean what it meant in later creeds. The actual conscious existence of the Son of God before his birth, at which time he entered the earth and the human condition by passing through the womb of his mother, that would be foreign to the New Testament. In Scripture, Jesus is produced from Mary. Matthew 1, verse 16. Strangely, in the second century, Justin Martyr begins to speak of Jesus coming through his mother. A Jewish and biblical conception of pre-existence is most significant for Jesus' understanding of himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is found in the book of Daniel. He, so to speak, pre-exists only in the sense that God grants us a vision of him, the human being, in his plan for the future. The Son of Man is a human being. That's what the words mean. Thus, what John wants us to understand is that the human Messiah was in heaven before his birth in God's plan and was seen in Daniel's vision of the future in Daniel 7. Compare with that John 6, 62. Jesus, at his ascension, went up to the position which had been previously prepared for him in God's plan. No text says that Jesus went back, the Greek word ipostrefo, 
went back to God. Though this idea has been wrongly imported into some modern English translations to support, quote, orthodoxy. Such mistranslations of the Greek, which says, go to the Father, not go back to the Father, those mistranslations tell their own story. See, for example, the New International Version at John 16, verse 28, and John 20, verse 17. Translations of the Bible are biased in favor of traditional post-biblical ideas of who Jesus is. The Son of Man is not an angel. No angel was ever called a Son of Man, which means a member of the human race, with good reason, Jesus' favorite self-title. To call the Messiah an angel would be a muddling of categories. Hence, scholars rightly report that the idea of pre-existence for the Messiah, antecedent to his birth in Bethlehem, is unknown in Judaism. The Messiah, according to all that's predicted of him in the Old Testament, belongs in his origin to the human race. I quote, Judaism has never known anything of a pre-existence peculiar to the Messiah antecedent to his birth as a human being. So said Dalman in his book, Words of Jesus. The dominance, says Professor Dalman, the dominance of the idea of literal pre-existence in any Jewish circle or whatever cannot seriously be upheld. Judaism knew nothing of the literally pre-existent ideal man. That quotation is from Charles Gore, Belief in Christ, written in 1923. To claim to be before Abraham, as Jesus did in John 8.58, does not mean that you remember being alive before your birth. That is to think like a Greek who believes in the pre-existence of souls. In the Hebrew thought of the New Testament, one can, so to speak, exist as part of God's plan, as did also the tabernacle, the temple, repentance, and other major elements of the divine purpose. Even Moses pre-existed in that special sense, according to a quotation we introduce later. John the Apostle could say also that Christ was, quote, crucified before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. This gives us an enormously valuable clue as to the way the New Testament writers understood pre-existence. There are multiple examples of past tenses in the Hebrew Bible which actually refer to future events. They are, so to speak, past because they describe events fixed in God's counsels and therefore they are certain to be realized. Bible readers disregard this very Jewish way of thinking when they leap to the conclusion that when Jesus said he had glory with the Father from the foundation of the world, as in John 17, 5, 
that he meant that he was alive at that time. Certainly in a Western frame of reference, the traditional understanding is reasonable. But can we not do the Messiah the honor of trying to understand his words in their own Hebrew environment? Should not the Bible be interpreted in the light of its own context and not according to our later creeds? No pre-existence for Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a deafening silence about any real pre-existence of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and Peter, and the whole of the Old Testament. Not only do they not hint at a pre-human Son of God, they contradict the idea by talking of the origin, the Greek word genesis, the origin of Jesus, Matthew 1 verse 18, and the begetting of Jesus as son in Matthew 1 verse 20. That begetting took place in Mary's womb. Note the mistranslation in our versions. The text does not refer to conception, but to begetting by the Father through the Holy Spirit. It is the action of the Father which brings the Son into existence. The Son of God, the Messiah, is supernaturally created as a person, the second Adam. Note also in Acts 13, verse 33, the reference to the raising up of Jesus, which refers to God's bringing him into being. Verse 34, on the other hand, mentions his subsequent resurrection. The King James Version obscures this important distinction. Luke knows nothing of any idea of literal pre-existence. Unprejudiced readers will see as acknowledged by a host of biblical experts, that the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and Peter is a human being originating at his conception and birth, as do all other human persons. He has not pre-existed. Matthew even speaks of the genesis of Jesus in Matthew 1 verse 18. Note that for Arians and Trinitarians who think that Jesus was begotten in eternity long before his conception or begetting in Mary, but this then would be a second begetting. Justin Martyr is perhaps the first church father to speak of a begetting of the Son prior to Genesis, as to say prior to creation but he provides no scriptural support for such an anti-mundane begetting of the Son. According to the Bible, the Son of God was begotten, as are all human persons, at the time of his conception in his mother's womb. Justin Martyr differs from Matthew by saying that the Son came through Mary. Matthew holds that he came from Mary. This points to the shift of thinking that has taken place by 150 AD, a shift which provided the seed 
of the later Trinitarian formulation. It is a serious imposition on the Gospel of John to understand him to teach a different sort of Jesus than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one who is really an angel or God appearing as a man. Such a non-human Messiah is foreign not only to the rest of the New Testament, but to the whole revelation of God in the Old Testament in regard to his definition of the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 18 expressly says that the Messiah is to arise from a family in Israel. The Messiah is expressly said in this important Christological text not to be God, but God's agent born to the family of Israel. All Jews who look forward to the Messiah expected a human person, not an angel, much less God himself. Though the Jews had not understood that the Messiah was to be born supernaturally, even this miraculous begetting in Mary was in fact predicted. For that information, consult Isaiah 7, verse 14, repeated in Matthew 1, verse 23. A, quote, pre-human Messiah, however, is nowhere suggested. According to Isaiah 44, verse 24, God was unaccompanied at the original creation. Jesus in the Gospels attributes the creation to the Father, and he has no memory of being the agent in the Genesis creation. Mark 10, verse 6, Matthew 6, verse 30, Matthew 19, verse 4, and Luke 12, verse 28. If Jesus had really been the creator of the Genesis heaven and earth, why does he have no memory of this? Why does he expressly say that God, his Father, was the creator? The answer is that Jesus worked within the Jewish and biblical framework of the scriptural heritage he had received and which he came not to destroy, as he said in Matthew's Gospel. The Spirit of God is available to believers as they learn to think as God does, they will share the concept that, quote, God speaks of things which do not exist as though they did. Romans 4 verse 17. It's a mistake to confuse existence in the plan of God with actual pre-existence, thus creating a non-fully human Jesus. The Christ of biblical expectation is a human person supernaturally conceived or begotten. The supreme glory of his achievement for us lies in the fact that he really was a human being. He was tempted, as we are, but God cannot be tempted. See James 1 verse 13. The so-called rock apostle whom Jesus appointed to, quote, feed my sheep, has given us a marvelous lesson in how to understand the meaning of pre-existence as really foreknowledge and predestination. It was Peter whose recognition of Jesus as the Messiah was greeted by the excited approval of Jesus. As we find in Matthew 16, 
verses 16 to 18. Peter and John understood that the glory which Jesus already, so to speak, had is the same glory believers subsequent to the time of Jesus and therefore not yet born when Jesus spoke also had been given, as Jesus said in John 17, verse 22. This means only that things which are fixed in God's counsels exist in a sense other than actual existence. We must choose whether to understand the language of the New Testament as Americans or Europeans, or rather as sympathetic to Jesus and his Jewish culture. A verse in Revelation speaks of things being before they were created. I quote, they were and were created. Revelation 4 verse 11. I note that the use of the verb were in that verse is interesting in the light of an alternative reading in John 17, 5, which speaks of the glory which was with you. This would be a statement about the pre-existing glory, not the pre-human Jesus, so-called. Glory which Jesus prayed to have bestowed on him, John 17, 5, and also on his followers, John 17, verse 22. For confirmation of this, please see Raymond Brown, The Gospel According to John, in the Anchor Bible series, written in 1966. Note also that Augustine and many other commentators find no evidence for literal pre-existence in John 17:5. A knowledge of the background of the New Testament reveals that Jews believed that even Moses pre-existed, so to speak, in the counsels of God, but not actually as a conscious person. I quote, For this is what the Lord of the world has decreed. He created the world on behalf of his people, but he did not make this purpose of creation known from the beginning of the world, so that the nations might be found guilty. But he did design and devise me, that's to say Moses in this quotation, Moses, who was prepared from the beginning of the world, to be the mediator of the covenant. That's a quotation from the outside the Bible book, Testament of Moses. If Moses was decreed in the plan of God, it makes perfect sense that the Messiah himself was the purpose for which God created everything. All things may then be said to have been created on behalf of the Christ out of respect for God's revealed plan and in honor of the human Savior, we should seek to understand his identity in the context of his own Hebrew setting. A fine statement of the Jewish understanding of pre-existence is given by the Norwegian scholar Mowinkel in his famous book, He That Cometh, that an expression of vehicle of God's will for the world, his saving counsel and purpose was present in his mind, that's to say his, so to speak, word from the beginning is a natural way 
of saying that it was not fortuitous, but the due unfolding and expression of God's own being. Compare with that John, quote, the word was with God and was God. This attribution of pre-existence indicates religious importance of the highest order. Rabbinic theology speaks of the law, of God's throne of glory, of Israel, and of other important objects of faith as things which had been created by God and were already present with him before the creation of the world. The same is also true of the Messiah. It is said that his name was present with God in heaven beforehand, that it was created before the world, and that it is eternal. But the reference here is not to genuine pre-existence in the strict and literal sense. This is clear from the fact that Israel is included among these pre-existent entities. This does not mean that either the nation Israel or its ancestor existed long ago in heaven, but that the community of Israel, the people of God, had been from all eternity in the mind of God as a factor in his purpose. This is true of references to the pre-existence of the Messiah. It is his, quote, name, not the Messiah himself, that is said to have been present with God before creation. In the Jewish writing, Pesikta Rabati, it is said that, quote, from the beginning of the creation of the world, the King Messiah was born, for he came up in the thought of God before the world was created. This means that from all eternity, it was the will of God that the Messiah should come into existence and should do his work in the world to fulfill God's eternal saving purpose. End of quotation. The proposition introduced by Gentile, philosophically-minded, so-called church fathers, that Jesus was either a second member of the Godhead, as in later orthodoxy, or a created angel, as with Arians and in modern times Jehovah's Witnesses, launched the whole vexed problem of the nature of Christ in relation to the Godhead and put under a fog the true messiahship of Jesus and his messianic gospel about the kingdom. Jesus of Nazareth, is what the word, that's to say God's wisdom, of John 1, 1 became. John 1, verse 14. That's to say Jesus embodies the wisdom of God, just as he also embodies the salvation of God, as in Luke 2, verse 30. Jesus is the unique expression as a human being, of the wisdom of God. It was the wisdom of God which existed from the beginning, and that wisdom became a person, a human person, at the conception of Jesus. This explanation leaves intact the great cardinal doctrine that the one God is the Father, 
and that Jesus is the Lord Messiah, not the Lord God. For that information, please consult Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Mark 12, verses 29 and following, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and John 17, verse 3, and John 5, verse 44. It was the early Greek church fathers who confused the issue of Jewish-Christian monotheism by introducing the idea of a numerically second God. You can consult Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, sections 56, 62, 128, and 129. Justin believed that the Son was begotten before the Genesis creation, but not that he had always been the Son. Justin, therefore, was what we would now call an Arian, not a Trinitarian. It is most significant that Paul often speaks of the gospel as having been hidden in the counsels of God from ages past. You'll find that in Ephesians 3 verse 9, Colossians 1 verse 26, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Titus 1 verse 2, and compare with those verses 1 Peter 1 verse 20 and Revelation 13 verse 8. Paul also says that the Son of God came into existence from a woman and from the seed of David. Galatians 4 verse 4, Romans 1 verse 3. It is unimaginable that Paul could have believed in the pre-existence of the Son. It would be untrue to say that the Son came into existence at his birth, if, in fact, he had always existed. It is far more reasonable to suppose that Paul agreed with Peter that the Messiah was hidden in the divine counsels and then revealed in the fullness of time. We note James Dunn's justifiable protest against Cranfield's comment on Romans 1 verse 3. Professor Dunn says, Unconcerned, by his use of anachronistic categories, Cranfield continues to argue that Paul intended to limit the application of, quote, who came into existence to the human nature which the one God, God's Son, assumed. That's a quotation from the Word Biblical Commentary on Romans, written in 1988. I note that Cranfield struggles to justify so-called orthodoxy from Paul's words. But Paul was neither a so-called orthodox Trinitarian nor an unorthodox Arian. Paul believed that in Jesus all things have been created, Colossians 1.16. He did not say that they'd been created by Jesus as mistranslated in 
some modern paraphrases and translations. Finally, it's most unreasonable to claim that wisdom in Proverbs, as to say, Lady Wisdom, was in fact Jesus, the Son pre-existing. It should not be difficult to discern that wisdom here is a personification of a divine quality, not a person. The proof of this is found not only in all major commentaries, but very clearly in the text itself. I quote, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Proverbs 8, verse 12. If wisdom is really a male son of God, then who is prudence? Pre-existing purposes and personifications are all part of the literature of Judaism. A pre-existent non-human Messiah is not. A Messiah who is not a human being approximates much more closely to the pagan idea of pre-existing souls and Gnostic aeons. It was that early invasion of paganism which unfortunately began to corrupt the faith, just as Peter and Paul warned. Second Peter 2, Acts 20, verses 29 to 31. That intrusion of paganism resulted in some very strange language about Jesus. His so-called pre-human existence signals the fact that he really is not a human being. He has existed as an angel before being born. This is close to the idea of, quote, the gods coming down in the likeness of men, Acts 14, verse 11. Such a Jesus sounds like a pagan saviour figure. There were many such cosmic saviours in the Greco-Roman world, but there was only one Messiah whose identity was given long in advance of his birth. He was foreknown, 1 Peter 1 verse 20, and would arise from the house of Israel as an Israelite of the tribe of Judah. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 18, Acts 3 verse 22, and Acts 7 verse 37. That important text in Deuteronomy actually states that the promised agent of God would not be the Lord God, but his spokesman and agent. Christians should be careful to claim allegiance to that Saviour. To worship a Saviour with wrong ideas about him runs the risk of worshipping another Saviour. The creed of Jesus is the right creed for Christians. Mark 12, verse 29. As so many scholars know, that creed in Mark 12, 29 is not a Trinitarian creed. The one God of Israel and of Jesus was and is the Father. For confirmation, see John 17, verse 33, John 5, verse 44, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. John 1 and verse 1. Christology, the study of who Jesus is, has to do with a reasoned statement 
about the relation of Jesus to the one God of Israel. There's no doubt that for the early Christians, Jesus had the value and reality of God. This, however, does not mean that they thought that Jesus was God. It has been held by some that John presents Jesus in metaphysical terms, which would appeal to people in the Greek world, who thought in terms of abstract ideas familiar to Hellenistic thought. So-called orthodoxy claims John as its bridge to the world of Greek metaphysics, the metaphysics which helped to mold the Jesus of the church councils. We suggest that we should first see if John can be readily understood in terms of his otherwise very Jewish approach. Why should we attempt to read John as though he were a student of the Jew Philo or of Gentile mystery religion? Why should John be claimed as a supporter of the dogmatic conclusions of the much later so-called church councils? Should we not make sense of John from the Old Testament world of ideas? I quote, what we do know, says a leading Bible scholar, is that John was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. If we wish to understand the historical ancestry of John's logos, or word with lowercase w, that concept should be understood as he himself, John, understood it. And for this we have to go back to those scriptures. That's a quotation from C.J. Wright in his book, Jesus, the Revelation of God. That's a quotation from C.J. Wright, entitled Jesus, the Revelation of God, part of a larger book entitled The Mission and Message of Jesus, an Exposition of the Gospels in the Light of Modern Research, written in 1938. It's a very considerable mistake to read John 1, verse 1, as though it means, in the beginning was the Son of God, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God. Compare with that the very misleading paraphrase of the Living Bible. I quote, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He's always been alive and is himself God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he did not make. This is not at all what John wrote. The German poet Goethe wrestled to find a correct translation. Quote, in the beginning was the word, the thought, the power, or the deed. He decided on deed. He comes very close to John's intention. What the evangelist wanted to say was, the creative thought of God has been operating from all eternity. As a leading British Bible scholar wrote, when John presents the eternal word, he was not thinking of a being in any way separate from God or some hypostasis. The later dogmatic Trinitarian distinctions 
should not be read into John's mind in the light of a philosophy which was not his. We must not read John in the light of the dogmatic history of the three centuries subsequent to the evangelist's writing. That's a quotation from C.J. Wright in his book, Jesus, the Revelation of God. To understand John and the rest of the New Testament, we must pay close attention to John's cultural heritage, which was not the world of Greek philosophy, in which the dogmatic creeds were formed some 300 years later. When John is read in the light of his Hebrew background, he provides no support for the doctrine of a Jesus who is, quote, God the Son, an eternal, uncreated person in a triune Godhead. I quote now, An author's language will confuse us unless we have some rapport with his mind. The evangelist John takes a well-known term, logos, does not define it, but unfolds what he himself means by it. The idea belonged to the Old Testament and is involved in the whole religious belief and experience of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the most fitting term to express his message, for a man's word is the expression of his mind, and his mind is his essential personality. Every mind must express itself, for activity is the very nature of mind. Thus John speaks of the so-called word that was with God and was divine to express his conviction that God has ever been active and revealing mind. God by his very nature cannot sit in heaven and do nothing. When later in the gospel Jesus says, my father works up till now, he is saying what the evangelist says in the first verse of the prologue. John's language is not the language of philosophical definition. John has a, so to speak, concrete and pictorial mind. The failure to understand John in his prologue has led many to the conclusion that he is, quote, the father of metaphysical, as to say, Trinitarian Christology, and is therefore responsible for the later ecclesiastical obscuration of the ethical and spiritual emphasis of Jesus. The evangelist John did not think in terms of the category of so-called substance, a category which was so congenial to the Greek mind. A quotation is again from C.J. Wright in his book, Jesus, the Revelation of God. In an illuminating article in the Bible Review, J. Harold Ellens points out that titles such as Son of God, as used at the time when the New Testament was written, and I quote, were never meant to designate the figures to whom they were applied as divine beings. They meant rather that these figures were imbued with divine spirit or the logos 
The titles referred to their function and character as men of God, not to their being God. Thinking of a human as being God was strictly a Greek or Hellenistic notion. Thus the early theological debates from the middle of the second century on were largely between Antioch, a center of Jewish Christianity on the one hand, and Alexandrian Christianity, heavily colored by Neoplatonic speculation on the other. For the most part, the Jewish Christians' argument tended to be that they had known Jesus and his family and that he was a human being, a great teacher, one filled with the divine Logos. But that he was not divine in the ontological sense, as the Alexandrians insisted. The arguments persisted in one form or another until Cyril of Alexandria's faction finally won the day for a highly mythologized Jesus of divine ontological being. Cyril was capable of murdering his fellow bishops to get his way. By the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, this Alexandrian perspective of high Christology, so-called, was dominant, but not uncontested by the Antiochian perspective of so-called low Christology. From Nicaea to Chalcedon, the speculative and Neoplatonist perspective gained increasing ground and became Orthodox Christian dogma in 451 CE. Unfortunately, what the theologians of the great ecumenical councils meant by such creedal titles as Son of God was remote from what those same titles meant in the Gospels. The creeds were speaking in Greek philosophical terms. The Gospels were speaking in Second Temple Judaism terms. The bishops of the councils should have realized that they had shifted ground from Hebrew metaphor to Greek ontology and in effect betrayed the real Jesus Christ. That's from an article entitled The Ancient Library of Alexandria in the Bible Review of February 1997. It is not difficult to understand that the Bible is abandoned when fundamental terms like Son of God are given new unbiblical meanings. The church councils, under the influence of Greek speculative Neoplatonism, replaced the New Testament Son of God with a God the Son fashioned by philosophy. When a different meaning for a title is substituted for the original, a new faith is created. The new faith became so-called orthodoxy. It insisted on its dogmas, on pain of excommunication and damnation, as we find in the Athanasian Creed. Nicene dogmatic 
so-called orthodoxy, lifted Jesus out of his Hebrew environment and twisted John's gospel in an effort to make John fit into so-called orthodoxy's philosophical mold. And so it has remained to this day. A revolution is needed to reverse this tragic process. It will come when Christians take personal responsibility for getting in touch with the Bible and investigating it with all the tools now at our disposal. A key to proper biblical understanding is to recognize that the Bible is a Jewish library of books and that Jesus was a Jew steeped in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The hidden paganism in Christianity needs to be exposed. The history of orthodoxy shows signs of a spirit which is far removed from the spirit of Jesus. Those who have questioned so-called orthodoxy have often been roughly handled. I add that for an illuminating example of misguided religious zeal and cruelty, you should consult the account of Calvin's savage persecution and execution of the Spanish doctor and scholar who questioned the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll find this in Marion Hiller's book, The Case of Michael Servetus, the turning point in the struggle for freedom of conscience. One commentator asks this, how is it that the religion of love has been responsible for some of the worst cruelties and injustices that have ever disgraced humanity? The church has persecuted more cruelly than any other religion. Our religious beliefs are propped up on the traditional scaffolding and many of us are intensely annoyed if the stability of this scaffolding is called in question. The average Catholic, and the same would apply to many Protestants, relies on the infallibility of his church, which he has usually accepted without investigation. To own that his church has been wrong and has sanctioned heinous crimes is almost impossible for him. That's a quotation from Dean W.R. Ng in his book, A Pacifist in Trouble, written in 1939. Monotheism. Neither Paul nor any other writer of the Bible ever stated that there is one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No example out of thousands of occurrences of Yahweh and God can be shown to mean, quote, God in three persons. The triune God is foreign to the Bible. The words of Paul need careful consideration. I quote, there is no God but one. To us, there is one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6. There is also one Lord Messiah, Jesus, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, 
but he is the Lord Christ, the Lord Messiah, as we read in Luke 2 verse 11 and Psalm 110 verse 1. The Son of the one God, his Father. The two major players in the Bible are described in a precious divine oracle quoted in the New Testament more than any other verse from the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 110.1 There the one God, Yahweh, gives an oracle to David's Lord, with lowercase l, who is addressed as Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l. Adoni, in all of its 195 occurrences, never means, as we have seen, the one God. It refers always to a human or occasionally angelic superior other than God. Jesus is the Lord of David, of whom Psalm 110 verse 1 speaks. He was appointed Lord and Messiah, appointed by God his Father. Acts 2 verses 34 to 36. Out of respect and honor for Jesus the Messiah, Christians should adopt his Jewish creed. In Mark 12:29, I quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. God is one Lord. Jesus is another Lord. That makes two Lords. But the creed knows of only one Lord who is God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Mark 12, verse 29. That is the creed of Jesus, and therefore the original and authentic Christian creed. It is also the creed of Paul. May we all joyfully embrace that creed and align ourselves thus with the Jesus Messiah of history.